Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we have a Christmas episode, a shipwreck episode, and a ghost story all rolled into one thing. And that is the story of the Christmas tree ship, uh, the Rouse Simmons which sank in Lake Michigan while hauling a load of Christmas trees to Chicago. This is a really popular story in the Great Lakes region. It's popular among Coast Guard personnel because the Coast Guard is carrying on its tradition today. Um, it's been the subject of documentaries and histories and folktales and storybooks, and yet I had never heard of it uh, until listener Alfred and then many other people requested it. I'm not exaggerating when I say many other people. We've gotten literally two requests for this in the last 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, we we've gotten several like throughout the year. It's not always when Christmas is is imminent, but as mm-hmm. we approach the holidays, it definitely ratchets up in in uh frequency of request. Yes. So, we're going to start with a little background on three things. The first is the captain of the Rouse Simmons The next is the Christmas trees themselves. And then the third is the ship that they were sailing on. And we're going to kind of talk about those three things before we talk about the actual event. So Captain Herman E. Schooneman was originally from Wisconsin. He was one of six children, and he was born around 1865. This was right at the peak of sail-powered shipping in the Great Lakes. He was growing up as sail-powered ships were being supplanted by steam-powered vessels. And most of the sailing ships that stayed on the water as steam took over hauled lumber. Herman and his brother August moved to Chicago when Herman was about 20 years old. Chicago was home to an extremely busy harbor where they could try their hands at both sailing and at other business ventures. On April 9th of 1891, Herman married Barbara Schindel. They had three daughters named Elsie, Hazel, and Pearl, and those last two were twins. Herman and August did pretty well for themselves, but by far their most money-making time of the year was in November and December when they sold Christmas trees. So the use of evergreen boughs to decorate homes around the winter solstice is a European tradition that goes back centuries. Uh, Then in Germany, medieval Christians began decorating evergreen trees with apples to symbolize the Garden of Eden. And this eventually morphed into the tradition of Christmas trees as we know them now, where it stopped being apples and many other ornaments took their places. And you eventually get what we are used to seeing in homes today. Decorating Christmas trees really did not spread far beyond its German roots until the 1840s, when Queen Victoria encouraged Prince Albert, who was born in Germany, to decorate a tree, as he had done when he was a child. Once a sketch of the royal family next to their tree appeared in the London News, Christmas trees, as was unsurprising when Queen Victoria did anything, became extremely fashionable. She's quite a trendsetter in many regards. We've talked about possibly doing an episode on just the things that she set in motion in terms of cultural popularity. But by the late 19th century, decorating trees had become a widely popular Christmas activity in the United States. And evergreen trees were in high demand leading up to the holiday. So in Chicago in particular, schooners laden with Christmas trees arrived from Wisconsin and northern Michigan, which were the nearest evergreen forests. These shipments came much later in the season than your typical lumber run or even your typical other shipping across the Great Lakes. 
because the objective was to deliver the trees not too long before Christmas, but before the absolute worst winter storms made the lake too hazardous to cross. This meant that Christmas trees were traveling on Lake Michigan as much as a month after all of the rest of the shipping operations had pretty much shut down for the season. And there were not that many people willing or able to make this late season trip. Uh, estimates put the number at maybe a couple dozen vessels, and included among these were ones captained by the Schunemann brothers. This is a job that Herman Schunemann seems to have really genuinely enjoyed, and he even continued to haul trees after his brother was killed in a shipwreck doing that exact thing. August Schunemann was aboard the schooner S. Thal, which broke up in a storm near Glencoe, Illinois, in November of 1898. Everyone aboard the ship was lost. Most likely, the only reason that Herman was not on board with his brother was because his twin daughters were newborns at that time. But after his brother's death, Herman Schunemann kept hauling Christmas trees on a number of different schooners. As he expanded the Christmas tree business, he kept needing to go farther and farther north to get better trees for less money. This was great from a business perspective. It gave him a bigger profit margin. Uh, But the farther north he went, the more likely he was to face really dangerous weather. And he also upgraded his vessels, uh, working his way up through larger, more stable vessels that could hold more trees. And the last of these, which he used for three years, was the Rouse Simmons. The Rouse Simmons was a 205-ton, three-masted schooner, which measured 132 feet long and 27 feet wide. It was licensed and enrolled out of Milwaukee on August 27th of 1868, and it was named after a prominent merchant from Kenosha, Wisconsin, who was one of the primary investors in the ship. Like most captains, uh, Schunemann couldn't afford to just buy a ship of his own. So in 1910, Captain Schunemann bought a partial share of the Rouse Simmons. In that same year, he established a new business, the North Michigan Evergreen Nursery. Its address was the southwest corner of Clark Street Bridge, which let him sell the trees directly from the ship rather than having to offload them and then distribute them to grocers and other resellers. He wasn't the only person who was doing this. There were other Christmas tree sellers who were uh, selling directly from their ships and they would generally decorate the ships and it would be a big production. And uh, like getting to that part of the story made me kind of wistful that I didn't live in Chicago during this time, because I think going down to the docks to pick a Christmas tree off of a ship would have been really cool. I would love to hunt down some pictures of the decorated ships if we can. Yeah, I, I, uh, as of, as, as of when we're sitting here, have not been able to find one that we can use, but I'm going to keep looking. Um, so by 1912, Schunemann and Captain Charles Nelson each owned an eighth of the Rouse Simmons, and a businessman named Mans J. Bonner owned the remaining three quarters of the ship. And by that year, Schunemann had also purchased 240 acres of land in Michigan, to use as his own Christmas tree farm. Even by cutting out the middlemen and owning his own farm, his margins were still basically razor thin. He had to p- transport as many trees as possible to be able to pay the salaries of the people who tended and cut the trees. He also had to pay the crew and everyone else involved in that chain, even though it was kind of encapsulated. Even so, he was an extremely generous man, and he actually gave a lot of his trees away to Chicago's poor. 
And he became such a beloved figure during the Chicago Christmas tree season that people started calling him Captain Santa. He seems to have loved this title, and he kept Captain Santa newspaper clippings in his wallet, which he wrapped in oilskin while he was captaining the schooner to keep the contents dry. So we're about to get to the more sad part of the story. So let's take a brief moment before we do. That sounds like a smart plan. So to return to the last voyage of the Rouse Simmons, in November of 1912, Schunemann had been doing late-season runs to haul Christmas trees for almost 30 years. So he was really experienced in doing this. The Rouse Simmons had also been on the water for more than 40 years, which was about twice as long as the typical lifespan of a sail-powered ship at the time. So, as you might expect, given its age, the ship was not in great condition anymore. All of those years of service, especially the ones that were spent sailing in stormy weather, had taken its toll on it. The schooner left Thompson, Michigan on November 22nd of 1912, with somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 Christmas trees. This was too many to fit in the hold, so many of them were arranged on the deck. Some people who saw it leave port described it as looking like a floating forest. The reason for being so overloaded was that many of the region's Christmas tree farms had been hammered by bad weather that year, and trees were in particularly short supply. There's a lot of stuff that we don't have really clear details about, and one of those is that we don't have a lot of concrete information about exactly who was aboard the Rouse Simmons for its final voyage. We know Captain Schunemann was there, as well as Captain Charles Nelson, each of them owning an eighth of the ship. There were also probably nine or ten other crew aboard. And there are reports that a party of lumberjacks had secured passage to Chicago aboard the schooner. None of this is documented very well. A huge winter storm hit Lake Michigan while the Rouse Simmons was en route. We don't have a lot of information about what happened between the schooner's departure on the 22nd and 2.50 p.m. on the following day, when a surfman, which is uh, what you would call a member of the life-saving service, which would later become the U.S. Coast Guard, told his station keeper, Captain Nelson Crate, that he'd spotted a ship heading south and flying a distress signal. Captain Crate tried to find a tugboat that, to go out and help the then-unknown schooner, but the vessel he was after had actually already left. A few minutes later, he lost sight of the ship, so he called the Two Rivers Life-Saving Station, which was the next station to the south, to raise the alarm. He ordered that they take their boat out to try to meet the distressed vessel and offer aid. And they did, heading out to the approximate position where they should have been able to meet the schooner. And at first, they had clear weather and good visibility, but as it started to get dark, the gale blew in. Visibility became extremely poor thanks to mist and heavy snow, and the rescue crew couldn't find any sign of the reported schooner, and 40-foot swells meant that their own lives were then at risk. There are tales that a break in the storm allowed some of the rescuers to catch a glimpse of a ship that looked like it was completely encased in ice and riding dangerously low in the water. This is probably kind of a romantic embellishment from later on. When the Ralph Simmons didn't arrive in Chicago as scheduled on the morning of November 27th, Barbara Schunemann and her daughters were naturally worried that something had gone wrong. But they held out hope that the captain had just pulled into a safe harbor to wait out the storm. This was something that he was known to do and would be uh, logical. But 
Sadly, the schooner never arrived, which made this Christmas season a really somber one in Chicago that year. On December 5th, the front page of the Chicago Tribune read, Christmas ship lost on the lake with 17 on board. And soon after that, Christmas trees started washing up on shore near two rivers. The saddest part of the story is really the loss of life, but that part just broke my heart when I learned it. Uh, So we're going to take another brief moment before we get back to some discussion about exactly what might have happened to to the ship and to the aftermath of this whole wreck. So there are several theories about exactly what led to the loss of the Rouse Simmons, along with all of its crew and its passengers. One theory is that the ship lost its wheel during the storm, although the wheel has been brought up by divers. Another is that the weight of all those Christmas trees was just too much for the aging schooner to endure once the storm got really bad, especially considering that in that kind of storm, the ship and the trees on the deck would have become increasingly covered in heavy ice. And uh, if you live anywhere where icy weather is common, you know how heavy a giant load of ice can be. Oh, yes. A third theory is that Schooneman's failure to have the ship recalked before the 1912 season was ultimately his undoing. He'd had the ship recalked the year before, and he probably didn't do it in 1912 because he didn't have the money in the aftermath of having been sued over non-payment of a debt. The fourth theory is that a huge wave caught the ship's anchor and kind of launched it over the bowsprit. And that this momentum pulled the bow of the ship under the water into a dive it just couldn't recover from. Fishermen did find a wallet wrapped in oil skin belonging to Captain Schooneman in their nets in 1924. Its contents were still intact and it was returned to his family. A diver named Kent Bell Richards found the deck in 1971 while he was looking for a completely different shipwreck, which was the Vernon That was a much larger ship that sank during a storm in 1887. This is all kind of serendipitous. He found the wreck by feeling it after his cobbled-together dive light malfunctioned under the water. The Rouse Simmons was in 172 feet of water, about four and a half miles from two rivers, and it was still full of Christmas trees. Some of the ones below the deck still had their needles intact. This was, coincidentally not far from where the Rouse Simmons nearly met its end in a different storm in 1905 when its masts were thrown off in a gale. In July and August of 2006, there was an underwater archaeological survey of the ship. It was conducted by the Wisconsin Historical Society. They found that the anchor chain and the masts were all lying forward of the bow. And so one possible explanation for this would be that the bow of the ship became too heavy And it took a nosedive. And another is that the heavy items, like the rigging and the chains, were all shoved forward as the ship was sinking and that it actually sank for some other reason. So this all basically lends support to the idea that it sank nose first. We don't have a lot more clarity about why that happened. Divers have pulled up a number of artifacts from the ship, including its nameplates and, as we said before, the wheel. Today, it's actually a popular stop for recreational divers. In 1913, Chicago put up its first Christmas tree in Daly Plaza in memory of the Rouse Simmons and the crew. More than 100,000 people came out on Christmas Eve to pay tribute. 
There's also a plaque in uh, commemoration on the Clark Street Bridge. In spite of this tragedy, Barbara and her daughters continued to sell Christmas trees, continuing to ship them by schooner for a number of years. And the practice of bringing Christmas trees into Chicago on schooners actually stopped completely by 1920. Sometime in that window, the Schoonemans started sending the trees by train and then selling them from a schooner in the port. The Schooneman daughters continued to sell trees from the family's lot for a few years after Barbara died in 1933. In December of 1934, they actually set up a Christmas tree shop in Chicago that they called Captain and Mrs. Schooneman's Daughters. That was the only year that they did that. There continue to be ghost stories uh, about the Rouse Simmons, that people saw rats leaving its hold before it set sail in 1912, and that it continues to sail the waters of Lake Michigan. People also claim that they can smell the scent of evergreens at Barbara Schoenemann's Chicago gravesite. And today, which is, I think, one of the reasons that people ask us to do this episode so often, the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Mackinac carries a load of more than a thousand Christmas trees to Chicago every year for distribution among Chicago's poor in commemoration of the Rouse Simmons. So it's become this Chicago tradition that has gone on for a while. Uh, and I think some of I know for sure this is not a think. I know for sure that some of the people who requested it sort of wanted to know the story behind this uh, tradition without already knowing that it involved the a shipwreck with the loss of all aboard right at Christmas time. So now we know. Yet another seemingly fun episode that goes south in a hurry. Yeah, it's we've had a series lately where in some cases we knew it was going to be sad before we started, but we didn't realize how sad. Or in the case of this one, did not really know that it was going to be sad, and then it turned out sad. Uh do you have unsad listener mail, perhaps? Do you have listener mail? I don't remember which one I picked today and whether it is sad or not. But but it is about shipwrecks because it comes from our uh, episode about the submarine S5, which several people have written to let me know that a submarine is a boat and a target the, the, the ship that it targets the ship. So you don't call a submarine a ship, which I think we did in the episode because I didn't know that. Me either. This is from Thomas, and Thomas says, I enjoyed the S5 episode and all the others, too. Dying in the water is probably my second biggest fear of death, too. But first isn't drifting into outer space, which is what I said mine was. Uh, It's dying in a fire and would probably feel about the same. I'm sure you've gotten all kinds of feedback with various other great acts of calm under fire, prompted by the captain's hell by compass comment. My favorite is from Captain Al Haynes, as he was cleared to land United Flight 232 in Sioux City, Iowa, July 19th, 1989. As with the sub-commander's comment, one just needs a little context to appreciate the gravity of the situation. It may be in a black hole being too recent to be part of, quote, history, and too far back for you to remember. So here is the high level. The DC-10 heavy set out of Denver and had 296 souls on board. It was just beginning to be sequenced for its arrival in Chicago. It was over Iowa. A catastrophic failure rendered one of three engines and all control surfaces inoperative. There is no car analogy because a car lives in 2D land, not 3D, and can just stop. The closest you might come is thinking about a car's steering locking up and the accelerator being stuck wide open, and you're leaning one way or the other to try to influence the direction. That is not an exaggeration. 
I heard the captain speak at an aviation seminar. He said that when they reached the base on the radio to ask for help and describe the situation, the base reassured them that they didn't understand what was wrong because if the situation was as they said, the plane would have long since crashed. Compound the situation with the next 40 minutes of pressure mounting as they bobbed through the skies of Iowa, able to modestly control left-hand turns with engine differential, the three guys in the cockpit carrying the other 293 people's lives in their hands. You can see the desperation of the situation. So finally, near the end of the ordeal with Sioux City in sight, the air traffic controller clears them to land, quote, on any runway. And Captain Haynes' response? You want to be particular and make it a runway, huh? (laughs) Some transcriptions add notation that there was a chuckle in his voice. Anyway, that's my favorite cool under fire quote. By the way, his leadership in the event saved over 180 lives. Uh, thank you so much for sending this story, Thomas. Although I was old enough during this event that, in theory, I could have remembered it. I do not remember it, probably because for many years I had a phobia of air travel. And I studiously avoided uh, all news about any kind of air disaster, um, but, which I think I think he sent a separate email that included... Uh, footage of the crash itself and even though I am now able to fly and it's I'm usually pretty okay I was like nope (laughs) not looking at that Uh, I love that quote though so thank you so much Thomas for sending it if you would like to write to us with uh, an episode request or another Christmas tree story or another airplane story or anything else you can we're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash mistinhistory and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. We have a Spreadshirt store full of cool things you can buy. It is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. And if you would like to learn a little more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website. That is howstuffworks.com. Put the word Christmas trees in the search bar. You will find how Christmas trees work, which includes some of the history of Christmas trees. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you will find uh, show notes on all of our episodes and all of the episodes themselves in a giant archive and other cool stuff. So you can do all of that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.